Section 13 of Psychological Warfare. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Tatiana Chichilla. Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Leinbarger. Chapter 7a Propaganda Analysis, Part 1. Opinion analysis pertains to what people think. Propaganda analysis deals with what somebody is trying to make them think. Each form of analysis is a new and flourishing field in civilian social research. The bibliographies of Smith, Laswell, and Casey, and the current reviews in the Public Opinion Quarterly demonstrate the existence of a large and growing literature on the subject. Each year, new textbooks in the field, or current revisions of old ones, can be counted on to bring scholastic and scientific findings up to date. Technical writings on visual education, religious conversion, labor organization, practical politics, revolutionary agitation, and on commercial advertising have frequent bearing on propaganda analysis. Propaganda cannot be analyzed in a logical vacuum. Every step in the operation is intensely practical. There is nothing timeless about it, other than that common sense which is based on the nature of man. The ancient Chinese three-character classic, from which several billion Chinese have tried to learn to read, says... Freely translated, this means, when people are born, they all start good, but even though they all start out about the same, you ought to see them after they have had time to become different from one another by picking up habits here and there. The common nature of man may be at the basis of all propaganda and politics, but incentives to action are found in the stimuli of varied everyday environments. Certain very elementary appeals can be made almost without reference to the personal everyday background, cultural historical milieu, of the person addressed. Yet in a matter as simple as staying alive or not staying alive, in which it might be supposed that all human beings would have the same basic response, the difference between Japanese and Americans was found to be basic when it came to surrender. To Japanese soldiers, the verbal distinction between surrender and cease honorable resistance was as important as the difference between life and death. The Japanese would not survive at the cost of their honor, but if their honor were satisfied, they willingly gave up. Propaganda is directed to the subtle niceties of thought by which people maintain their personal orientation in an unstable interpersonal world. Propaganda must use the language of the mother, the schoolteacher, the lover, the bully, the policeman, the actor, the ecclesiastic, the buddy, the newspaperman, all of them in turn. And propaganda analysis, in weighing and evaluating propaganda, must be even more discriminating in determining whether the propaganda is apt to hit its mark or not. Monitoring. The first requisite of propaganda analysis is materials to be analyzed. In time of peace, it is usually enough to send a subscription to the newspaper, magazine, or pamphlet series, and to buy the books as they come out. Poster propaganda is more difficult to obtain, and frequently requires on-the-spot contacts. Dr. David Rowe brought back from occupied China, in the early days of the Sino-Japanese War, a spectacularly well done and interesting series of Japanese and Quisling posters. They were not hard to come by once he was there, but he had to go about 20,000 miles to get them in return. In obtaining printed propaganda, better results will be achieved if the same sources are followed consistently over a period of time than if one triumphant raid is carried through. The choice may look like this, see chart 3. If, in this instance, the propaganda analysis is to be a one-man enterprise in a small country or area in time of peace, the one man can collect all the different kinds of samples in March, and can then spend several months trying to see how they add up. 
by the time his analysis is ready, it will be badly dated and will necessarily be less interesting to the recipients than would a report which was up to the week. Furthermore, unless the analyst knows the area very well indeed, he will risk mistaking transient issues for basic ones. If the old agrarians happen to be accused of right-wing deviationism during the week of 3rd to 10th March, the analyst may falsely conclude that the old agrarian issue is tempestuous or profound. Unless he has a large staff, faces a special crisis, or pursues a scholarly purpose, the analyst does well to pick the alternative illustrated in the vertical column. He should pick his media carefully, accepting the advice of people who know the area intimately. In an opinion-controlled area, it is wise to take both a direct government propaganda paper and the opposition of semi-independent paper, if such exist. Local papers are often better guides to domestic propaganda than our big metropolitan papers. The propagandists of the country know that foreigners may watch the big papers, and they will reserve their most vicious, naive, or bigoted appeals for the local press. Along with the local press of one or two selected localities, the analyst should select several government personages and should follow every word of theirs he can find. The basic principle is for the analyst himself to determine the range of materials to be covered by deciding his own workload in advance. This in turn depends on the time he has available for the task, his mastery of the language, his interest in the projects, probable interruptions due to semi-official elbow bending, and other personal factors. The rule remains. Consistent analysis of the same output with reference to basic topics over a sustained period will inevitably reveal the propaganda intention of the source. It must be pointed out that the expert analyst still is needed to select topics and to confirm interpretations. To make a first guess as to whether the intended effect is being achieved or not, the analyst uses himself as a propaganda guinea pig. What does he think of the issues? What might he have thought otherwise? What would he think if he were a little less intelligent, a little more uncritical than he is? And to complete the analysis, the analyst must go out to the audience that receives the materials and find out what effects the propaganda has had by asking them about it. Printed materials. The most readily available sources of propaganda are not printed ones. Especially in time of hostilities, it may not be easy to subscribe to enemy materials by the process of sending an international postal money order. Delays involved in transmitting the printed materials may make them useless for spot analysis, and valuable only for long-range basic studies of morale. The propagandist who is being analyzed may oblige by reading large numbers of editorials on the radio. During the last war, officers and citizens occasionally exploded with alarm when Radio Tokyo quoted a Life or New York Times editorial several hours after it appeared. They naturally supposed that the Japanese had a secret shortwave transmitter running from New York City direct to Tokyo, and overlooked the fact that the OWI may have quoted long excerpts in slow Morse code on its trans-Pacific beam to China. The Japanese had picked it up, used subquotes, and beamed it back. Printed matter goes on the air in any major news operation. It is only a matter of time before telephoto facilities develop in line with the experimental New York Times edition printed in San Francisco during the United Nations Organizational Conference. This was sent, all in one piece, by wire photo to Frisco and reprinted. The delay between the two editions was merely a matter of minutes. In the future, wireless telephoto may reduce this to seconds, so that all belligerents can simply tune in on each other's major newspapers. Radio For the present, radio remains the biggest source of propaganda intake. Radio is convenient. It can be picked up illegitimately without too much fear of detection. For the cost per person reached, it is certainly the cheapest way of getting material to millions of people promptly. It lends itself to monitoring, and even standard long wavelengths can be picked up from surprisingly great distances. 
The only defense against enemy use of radio monitoring or broadcasting consists of the application of wired radio, which means plugging all the radio sets in on the telephone circuit, putting nothing on the air, and defying the enemy to eavesdrop. If the radio sets are then policed and are made incapable of receiving wireless material, that particular audience is effectively cut off from the enemy. When the Red Army, with its acute propaganda-conscious security, moved into many Eastern European cities, the first thing it did was to round up all the radios which the Nazis had overlooked. This prevented the liberated peoples from being enslaved by the filthy reactionary lies of the American and British governments, and made sure that the peoples would stay liberated under influence of their local Soviet-controlled newspapers. Wired radio is expensive. Radio suppression is difficult. The successful concealers of radio receivers become two-legged newspapers and go around town spreading all the hot dope which the authorities are trying to suppress. Scarcity puts a premium on such news. Rumor then becomes unmanageable. Except for strangely drastic situations, it is probable that the great powers will continue to tolerate radio reception, even though it may mean letting foreign subversive propaganda slip in now and then. It is therefore likely that radio broadcasts will be available for monitoring for the pre-belligerent stages of the next war, should war come again in our time, and that radio may last through a great part or all of the duration of the war. Factors which cannot now be foreseen, such as radio control of weapons, will affect this. Radio propaganda analysis follows the same considerations as those which govern choice of materials for analyzing printed matter. It is a surer method to follow one or two programs on a station than to make wide random selections. A standard wave transmitter to the home audience comes closer to revealing the domestic scene than would a global rebroadcast of ostensibly identical material. Radio has a further advantage over print. Few nations print out separate propaganda for each foreign language area, while almost every large and medium-sized country has international facilities for broadcast. Since the programs are beamed to different language groups, the senders automatically make up propaganda lines for each audience. Attentive monitoring can provide material for distinguishing the various lines which any given nation is sending out to its friends, neighbors, or rivals. Frequently, the differences between these lines make good counter-propaganda. If you hear the Germans telling the Danes that all Nordics are supermen and all non-Nordics scum, while telling the Japanese that the national socialist idea of the world transcends Pluto-democratic race prejudice, put the two quotations together and send them back to the Danes and Japanese both. Radio, unlike print, cannot be held for the analyst's convenience. It is physically unhandy to try to file actual recordings of enemy broadcasts for preservation and reference. When the analysis center is large, as it would be if near the headquarters of a government or a theater of war, the difficulties of monitoring involve problems of stenographic and language help. The monitors themselves can then be stenographers, taking verbatim dictation. They write down the enemy broadcast word for word, either right off the air or from records. The editor then selects the most important parts of the day's intake for mimeographic or other circulation. Important material can be put in a daily radio summary of enemy propaganda for the area monitored. The rest of it can be sent along by mail, put in files, and classified, lest the enemy government find out what its own propagandists really were saying, preserved on recording, or destroyed. During World War II, these basic verbatim reports played a very important part. The Foreign Broadcast Intelligence Service did the job for the United States, operating through the war years under the Federal Communications Commission. It has since been shifted from FCC to the War Department, and from the War Department to the Central Intelligence Group. Its materials sometimes are unclassified, although during most of the war they were marked restricted, and they are not available to the public except through microfilm copies of the Library of Congress file. These FBIS daily reports skimmed the cream off the enemy news broadcasts and included editorial or future material which might have intelligence or policy interest.
monitoring by a single individual. Where monitoring must be done by a single individual or a very small staff, it is desirable to find a basic news broadcast and to take it down verbatim where possible. This gives the analyst the chance of a second look at his materials and keeps him from having to make snap judgments of what is important and what is not right during the course of the broadcast. Selection of a basic news program, followed by reference to speeches, plays, lectures, and other programs that indicate the overall tone of the day's output, will make it possible for one person to do an adequate monitoring job on about one-eighth of his full-time work per station. This does not leave him time to do much fancy analysis or to prepare graphs, but he can pass along the general psychological warfare situation so far as that particular beam on that particular transmitter is concerned. The most likely situation for the isolated consul, businessman, officer, missionary, or amateur is one in which he can get a certain amount of stenographic help in taking down the broadcast material. The radio from monitoring varies in accordance with general reception conditions. Practically all the U.S. Army Signal Corps receivers will perform satisfactorily for local monitoring. So too will ordinary private sets, including the larger portables. An automobile radio can often be driven away from interference and from a hilltop or the edge of a lake can pick up a standard wave station that cannot be distinguished on a much larger house set in the city. For transoceanic or worldwide reception, a shortwave receiver is of course necessary. It is unwise to pick a sample that involves too much rapid speech, such as a foreign soap opera. The best reception is always the Morse code transmission of news or the slow dictation speed reading of news from one central station to outlying news offices or substations. Selection of a program which usually comes in, arrangement for a verbatim copy of the program, daily checking of the news under standard analysis procedures, this gives a very fair cross-section. One man sitting at Hankow could find out just what both the Generalissimo and the Chinese Communists were trying to tell the French understanding and the Dutch understanding listeners in the Far East. Another with pipe and slippers in Brussels could keep tabs on the basic Russian lines to the Spanish-speaking world. Such monitoring often comes in handy for newspapers, commercial firms, governments, military establishments, speculators, and research institutions. Identification. Propaganda versus truth. The point will invariably arise. This tells me how to listen to a foreign radio. Okay, I'll get the news, the lectures, the plays, all the rest of it. But so what? How am I going to know what's the truth and what's the propaganda? How can I tell them apart? Tell me that. The answer is simple. If you agree with it, it's truth. If you don't agree, it's propaganda. Pretend that it is all propaganda. See what happens on your analysis reports. Propaganda was defined at the beginning of this book as follows. Propaganda consists of the planned use of any form of communication designed to affect the minds and emotions of a given group for a specific purpose. Taking a lesson from communist theory, we can say that any form of mass communication is operated for propaganda purposes if no other motive for running it is evident. Human beings talk. They like to talk. Much private talk is idle, but only an imbecile would talk over a radio network just for the pleasure of hearing himself talking. Propaganda is presentation for a purpose. It is the purpose that makes it propaganda, and not the truthfulness or untruthfulness of it. The collected news of any modern country contains more truth each day than any one man could read in a lifetime. The reporters, editors, writers, announcers who collect truth not only collect it, they select it. They have to. Why do they select it? That is the propaganda question. If they select it to affect the minds and emotions of a given group for a specific purpose, it is propaganda. If they report that a little girl fell out of bed and broke her neck with the intent of frightening parents among their listeners into following the Safe Homes Week campaign, that is propaganda. 
But if they report it because it is the only death in the community, and because they might as well fill up the program, it is not propaganda. If you put the statement on the air, an American Negro workman in Greensboro, North Carolina, got 80 cents for a hard day's work last week, that can be presented and interpreted as A. Simple news, if there is something more to the story, about what the man said, or how he spent the 80 cents on cornmeal to feed his pet tarantula. B. Anti-capitalist propaganda, if you show that 80 cents is mighty little money for American business to pay its workers. C. Pro-capitalist propaganda, if you show that the 80 cents will buy more than two weeks' wages of a worker in the city of Riga when it comes to consumer goods. D. Anti-white propaganda, if you show the man got only 80 cents because he was a Negro. And so on, through a further variety of interpretations. The facts, man, happening, amount, place, time, are true in each case. They could be sworn to by the whole membership of an interfaith conference. But the interpretation placed on them, who communicates these facts to whom, why, when, makes them into propaganda. An interpretation can be no more true or untrue than a Ford car can be vanilla or strawberry in flavor. The questions of truth and of interpretation are unrelated categories. The essence of motive is that it is ultimately private and impenetrable, and interpretation commonly involves imputation of motive. You can dislike an interpretation, you can kill a man for believing it, you can propagandize him out of believing it, but you cannot sit down and prove that it is untrue. Facts and logic are useful in propaganda, but they cannot be elevated to the point where you can say, is it propaganda or is it true? Almost all good propaganda, no matter what kind, is true. It uses truth selectively. There is no secret formula which, once applied, provides an unfailing test for propaganda. It is not possible for a person unfamiliar with the part of the world affected, with the topic discussed, with the interested parties, and with the immediate politics involved, to put his finger on an item and say, this rightist charge is propaganda, and then to turn and say, but that rightist statement is not propaganda, it is fact. Untruthful statements are made at times for other than propaganda purposes. Truthful statements may be propaganda or not. The analyst must himself be an interested party. He must determine ahead of time what he will regard as propaganda and what not. And he must do so by delimiting the field of his analysis before he even starts. No one person or staff of people could ever trace all the motives behind a single statement, even to attempt that he would have to be a novelist of the school of Marcel Proust, and he would end up feeling like James Joyce, Gertrude Stein, or Franz Kafka. The analyst looks in the direction in which the message is going. He defines the propaganda presentation of the people who get the message in terms of all the public information to which the persons addressed have access. If he does not know the purpose of the message, he may divine it from the character of the audience and from the effect he presumes the message may reasonably be expected to have on an audience. If he does not know the audience, he can at least follow the physical transit of the message. In what language does it move? Whence? Whither? When? Figure 21. Mockery of Enemy Propaganda Slogans Homefront propaganda was sometimes repeated in an inappropriate place, in order to achieve an effect contrary to that originally intended. These Nazi leaflets, dropped on American detachments in Europe, used modifications of the It's Your Job posters and advertisements used by the U.S. for home front purposes. Figure 22. Mockery of Enemy Propaganda Technique. When the content of enemy propaganda cannot be attacked, the media themselves can sometimes be criticized. This German leaflet attempted utilization of potential suspicions of Hollywood. In so doing, it used three techniques. Built up from a news item, suitably faked, 
raise suspicion of the movies which the Germans knew our army showed for morale purposes, and spread racial hate. Figure 23. Direct reply leaflet. World War II propagandists often succumbed to the temptation of using the enemy materials and sending them right back. Sarcasm can be effective if the reader identifies himself with the speaker and not with the addressee. In this Nazi leaflet from the Anzio beachhead, the Germans probably antagonized more Americans than they befriended. A simple statement of the news would have been more effective. End of figures 21 through 23. End of section 13.